We are continuing as we move through August. We're continuing to remind ourselves who we are as followers of Jesus, most importantly, but also distinctively who we are as Missio Dei, Missio Dei Peoria. And so we're going through uh, just kind of the, the annual reminder of our rhythms, our identities, and what we believe in the true story of the whole world and what our place is in that. And so if you've heard some of this before, I'm glad you're still with us because <laughs> it's it's been a while, but if you're hearing it for the first time, I'm also super glad that you're here to hear it because it's true for all of us, whether or not you've been with us this whole time or not. And so we're, we're moving through what we are calling Simple Not Easy this month is our series before we get back into going through uh, routinely going through books of the Bible. And so we'll be starting Ecclesiastes in September. But Simple Not Easy is this idea that the stuff that Jesus calls us to it's not rocket science. It's not this really difficult algorithm for us to figure out, man, what does following Jesus look like? It's actually a very simple thing he calls us to, but just because it's simple and not complex doesn't mean that it's not very difficult and hard. It's, it's very hard to follow Jesus. That's why he uses language like fighting the good fight or dying to yourself. That doesn't sound very easy, right? It's difficult to do. And it's not that we are doing it because we're awesome Christians. I said that last week and I wanted to say that again. It's not because we're great. It's because the things Jesus calls us to are things that require the power of his Holy Spirit at work within us to actually live out. The same spirit that brought him into this world, the same spirit that hovered over this world at the beginning of creation, the same spirit that Jesus performed all his miracles through, the same spirit that he went to the cross in his power for you and I, and the same spirit that rose him from the grave again, he said, I am giving to you who trust and follow me. And so his spirit is at work and alive in us if we are following after Jesus. That's good news, amen? And so we actually have the power to live these things out. And so last week we talked about what the true story of the whole world is. And I want to do a little recap of that for us. And so I've got our fancy iPad drawing up there. And I'm going to trip over this rug again today. So we have six symbols that we say are a reminder to us of what this is. It's not a rule book. Scripture is not just a collection of good moral stories that we can learn from. It's not a bunch of inspirational sayings. You might find those things in here, but what it ultimately is, is the true story of the entire world. And these six symbols help remind us what that story is, what the flow of the story looks like. And so I just want to make sure we're all awake still, and I'm going to force you to respond again, okay? So what is this first symbol here of this down arrow? Man, you guys are good. Creation. Now, if you remember when Will was teaching a while back, he was saying that the iPad was at fault, was to blame for bad handwriting. I dropped mine on the tile a couple weeks ago. So mine's because my screen's cracked. It's not because my handwriting is bad. So what's our next one? We have creation, and then what happens next? Yeah. Rebellion or the fall. Absolutely. Commonly known as the fall in our culture, um, a lot of times we like to say rebellion because 
It's not just that we tripped and fell on accident, uh, but we purposely rebelled against God who created everything good, right? And so then what happens next after that third symbol? God did not leave us in our rebellion. He did not leave us in the consequences of our rebellion, which was death and forever separation from him. But he made a promise to us that he would come and set all things right one day. And so we got the Old Testament right here going on. And then we flip over and we get to Matthew, the first gospel account, the first book in the New Testament. And what do we see in that fourth act of the story? Redemption through Jesus. Jesus comes, God with us. Jesus walks on this earth and dwells with humanity, enters into the brokenness and the poverty and the oppression and the sin that's all around him. And he befriends the stranger and the sinner. And he eats with the people that the the religious good people would not eat with. And he has conversations and he listens to their stories and he shares the story of the kingdom of God with them. And he invites them to live into that. And he goes and he takes that penalty of death that was owed to us because of this rebellion. He takes that on fully. God himself stepping in to the form of humanity, taking on the guilt and the weight of humanity's rebellion by going to death on a cross. But we know that the story doesn't end there and he doesn't stay dead. And so Jesus rises again, as I said a moment ago, in the power of the spirit. And then he comes to his followers and he says, I want you now to go and teach people what I've taught you. And I want you to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I am going to be with you always. My spirit I give to you. My peace I give to you. And so this fifth symbol here is what? We are now the church, the body of Christ, and the bride of Christ, who have been invited into his story and into the work of his mission until Jesus physically returns back to his good creation and we have full restoration here in the sixth and final act of the story where we will dwell for eternity with God living among us, God with us. That's the true story. And it's the true story of the whole world. And so we don't just say this is the story of the Bible only or that this is just the story of Christianity, but this we believe is the true story of the whole world. And so that means that whether or not you believe it, it's still true. That whether or not you believe that you live in Arizona, you still are here in Arizona. Like you can't just change what is true to fit your mood or your experiences or your feelings. And so if this is true, if this is true, we have to conform to it. And we have to find how we can live faithfully in it. And so that becomes our question for those of us who believe that this is the true story of the whole world is how do we more faithfully live in this story? And so I want to pose that question to you right now, and I would love to hear some thoughts. What are your thoughts on some ways that we can more faithfully live in this story? What's that look like? 
That's good. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. Keeping the promises of God and the story fresh in your mind, allowing to, as the scripture says, renew your mind daily. So knowing the story well is a big part of living in the story. That makes sense, right? Yeah, what else? Amy? Yeah. That's great. That's great. Yeah, whether it was the Israelites literally wandering in the desert for 40 years waiting for the promised land or us, this side of the cross and resurrection, waiting and wandering through the brokenness of this world and the, the hate and the division that's going on and waiting for Jesus to return, we remind ourselves this is still part of God's story, that he's still very much at work, alive, and active through it, and that there is another chapter coming. That's good. Now, those, those are good. Those are great. We have to know the story. We have to remind ourselves the story in order to more faithfully live in the story. But what happens, I think, for a lot of us, what practically starts to happen is that we take that idea and it translates, it filters into functionally what it looks like is us trying to do the right things in the right moments, trying to obey the story, trying to make sure that we are living up to the standard of the story. And so what we've done by trying to more faithfully live in and engage in the story is we've then reverted the story back to being a rule book. Well, how do I live more faithfully in the story? I make sure that I'm obeying God's commands. I make sure that I'm reading the Bible enough and not just reading it to know the story and to be well-versed in the story, which is a good thing, but I got to make sure I'm reading my Bible because that's what a good Christian does, that I'm going to church on the right days and that I'm praying the right prayers. And so what it becomes is less of living in the story and inviting others to come enter into that true story with us, and it becomes more about behavior modification. So my son, Liam, my youngest, uh, was in kindergarten last year. He's in first grade this year. They just completed their first week of school. He already hates it. Day three, he was like, who invented school? This was the worst idea ever. Why do I have to go? But last year, we were, we were kind of scared, like, how it was going to go. And last year, he blew us away. He did such a great job in school. And they have this color-coded system at school, like, you earn a color. Uh, and so pink was the highest. Pink is the best color you can end the day with. And Liam would come home with these pink cards a lot. And so I was, I'll be honest, I was shocked. And there would be times where Liam would come home and just act in a fool. And I would be like, Liam, what color card did you get at school today? And his face would light up and he'd go, I got pink card. And I would go, what color card do you think you're getting at home today? 
And then his face, his grin would fade, and he's like, probably not a pink card. <laughs> but what our school was really good at was they learned some tricks of the trade to modify or manage their students' behavior really well so that they can get through the day and teach what they needed to teach. And I'm thankful that they did that. And there's actually some really good tools that we've applied to the home as well. But it's, at the end of the day, behavior modification. Because when he would get home and there's no longer a card system, what would come out? What would spring out of his heart? Were the things that he wanted to do. Right? And so what my task is as a parent is to not just modify his behavior until he's 18 years old and moves out and now is free from my rules and could do whatever he really truly wants to do, but to actually help shape and form his heart, which is a much slower and sometimes more painful process, but shaping and forming his heart to desire the things of God and desire the things that are true in the true story. And so... If that's our task, is to shape and form our hearts around what is true, around the true story, then we have to look at, we have to be well-versed in the story, as you said. We have to look at what has happened and taken place in the story. And primarily, we need to be reminded of what is at the center of the story, the climax of the story, is this thing we call the gospel. And we use that word, and you've heard that word in our culture, but what does gospel actually mean? Good news, right? Good news. Good news means that there is an event that has taken place. It is news of something that has actually happened in history, and it's good because it still affects today, and it has implications for tomorrow. But so often we, we talk about the gospel and we apply it to our lives as if it were just good advice. Oh, you're struggling with this sin? Let me tell you how to avoid it. Oh, you're, you're wrestling with what's going on in your workplace? Well, let me tell you a couple tricks that I've learned, right? Do you know that the Bible says this? Maybe you should memorize that verse and just repeat it as a mantra to yourself when your boss is yelling at you because that might help you get through the day. And all those things are fine and they're good, but we're forgetting that the gospel is more than just good advice of how you can apply it to your life so that you can have a more comfortable or safe or powerful life right here and now, but it's good news. This is something that has happened, taken place in history, and it has implications for all of us here today. And it has secured you a future for eternity. Good news. And so we have to remember that this, I forgot to write that. This is a story, it's a timeline. This is not just a model of uh, a framework for how you feel right now. Because we've asked people before, where, where do you think you are in this story right now? And a lot of people who are well acquainted with their sin and their failures and their faults will say, this is where I am. That second act right there of rebellion, of the fall, of where there's brokenness, that's how my life is right now. And a lot of us live our lives as if we're stuck in act two of the story. But the reality is that was something that has happened there was a rebellion against God that took place in the timeline of history 
But as Amy was saying earlier, that was part of the story, and God was still at work. And there's something else that has taken place in this story now. There has been redemption from that rebellion. Jesus has come. Jesus has paid the price for our rebellion. And Jesus has conquered death and the grave. That has happened. Good news. It has taken place. And so we are physically now in this fifth act of the story. We are this church, empowered by the Spirit, going with the good news of what Jesus has done, but awaiting for this final act to come of restoration. And so we live in this kind of weird in-between space right now where redemption has come, but restoration has not fully been finalized and realized yet. And what that means is that we live in a time with two competing stories. Because there are still lingering effects of Act 2, the rebellion, even though Jesus has paid the price, he has set things in motion, he said on the cross, it is finished, his work of redemption is done. He has not yet come to fully restore all things. And so we live in this in-between time where there are still lingering effects of brokenness. And so the two competing stories are either redemption has come or it has not. Those are really the only two stories you can faithfully live in in our world. Either redemption has come in Jesus, which means he's working toward restoration of all things, or it hasn't come. And no matter what other framework of a worldview you want to put on that, if you are not following after Jesus in his true story, you are living as if redemption has not come. And let me give you an example of what that looks like. Every single one of us, no matter which story you believe, no matter which story you are living in day by day, every single one of us as human beings have been designed with certain needs. And I'm going to talk not right now not just about like you have a need for food and water and things like that. Those are needs too. So not so much physical needs, but... I'm going to do a little psychology 101 here, okay? And I'm going to be your professor. I'm thankful Crystal actually left the room right now, so she can't tell me where I'm wrong. There are four basic psychological needs that every human being has. We all have a need, every single one of us have a need to feel safe. Would you agree with that? We need to be safe. Like if, you're, if you are trying to get kids at school to learn, but they're going home to a street corner, and they don't know when food is coming, they don't have someone to watch over them and care for them, they're not going to learn very well in the classroom. Like that's a, that's a no-brainer. And so we have to address that need of safety first before we can go anywhere else. Every single one of us has a need to feel safe. Every single one of us has a need to have a purpose in our lives. If you don't have a purpose in your life, then what is it for? And that's where depression and anxiety and suicide starts to run rampant in our society because most people 
don't feel like they have a sense of purpose for themselves. Every single one of us has a need to experience pleasure in life. There's been parts of the world of humanity who have fought against that idea, whether it's Stoics or whatever the case may be, that this idea that like, no, you, you have to abstain from pleasure completely altogether. And let me just say, like, that is not how the human being is designed. We are designed to experience pleasure in life. And every single one of us has this need to be loved. Would you guys agree with these? There may be more, but for the sake of Psychology 101 with Professor Preby today, this morning, in Missio Pure, we are going to address these four basic needs, psychological needs of every human being. And what happens is if you have these needs, which every human being, I believe, does, the way that you respond to meeting those needs is going to be directly determined by which story you are living in. Either redemption has come or it has not. Either Jesus has come to bring you from being an enemy to God into a child of God, wrapped and secured in the arms of a loving father who has an inheritance awaiting him or herself in the eternity when Jesus returns, an inheritance awaiting to be in the presence of God Almighty forever. Man, that feels pretty safe. Or if redemption has not come and you have this need for safety, then you have to start taking control, don't you? You have to take control for yourself so that you can secure your home and your community and your borders, and that you can make sure that you're financially stable, that you can make sure that your family is provided for. Right? What about purpose? If every single one of us needs a sense of purpose for our lives, if redemption has come, then what Jesus has done is he has done all the work of God's mission through the power of the spirit and then given us the power of his spirit and invited us into that work. And he said, I've prepared good works for you to walk in now and I've given you my spirit to go and do likewise. I'm inviting you into my mission of restoring all things. You have a purpose for your life, or redemption has not come, right? And if you don't have a purpose for your life, if you don't have this sense of significance and meaning, then you start living life very anxiously, don't you? Wondering what to do. Or you start feeling depressed, as I mentioned earlier. Or if you're trying so hard to show others your significance, to display that you have meaning to other people, you start really fearing what other people think about you. We all have this need for pleasure, this need to experience joy and happiness. And if redemption has come, if Jesus has come to give us the good gift of life and life more abundantly, as scripture says, 
then we all know that we have a satisfaction, a pleasure, a joy eternal that is found in him and him alone. But if, if redemption has not come, then we all start seeking it through instant gratification. Don't worry, I spelled that right. Don't second guess me. Instant gratification. I want to feel good right now. No matter what it takes. And if we all have this need to be loved, and redemption has come through Jesus, we know that the almighty creator of all things has left his home in heaven, his rightful place at the throne of God to come down and enter in to sin and brokenness and death for you on your behalf so that the father could adopt you as his son, as his daughter, to make you his loved child. Or if redemption has not come, what do we do with our need for love? We start looking for it in cheap areas, whether it's online or through abusive relationships or what a lot of us tend to do and what I tend to do is we strive to prove our worth to other people so that they could love us more. Do any of these resonate with anyone here? You don't all have to put your hands up. That's okay. If I've described in any way, any part of your life, then here's what I want to submit is that you are not believing in the truth of the gospel, the good news that redemption has come through Jesus. And you go, whoa, 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 hold on a second. How dare you? How dare you imply that I'm not a believer? I said the prayer. I've gone to church. Don't tell me I don't believe in God. I want to read to us from Hebrews chapter 3 right now. So if you have your Bibles, if not, we'll put it up on the screen. Hebrews 3, verses 12 and 13 says this. The author of Hebrews is writing to believers, to Christians. And we know this because of the language used here. Take care, brothers and sisters. Brothers and sisters, meaning you've been adopted into the family of God because of your faith in Jesus. So I'll read it from the screen. I, I like the way the NIV has it, and I'm holding the ESV. So in the NIV, see to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. See, what we find here is that even believers struggle to believe. This isn't necessarily saying that hey, you could lose your salvation if you just stop believing in God. No, 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 what it's describing here is this idea that there's your cognitive belief, that's your head. You know this is true, but you are functionally living as if it were not. And you need to be on guard. You need to know the story well. You need to have it told to you over and over again. You need to read it over and over again. You need to sit in the truth of it 
over and over again. You need to spend time with the creator and author of it over and over and over again so that you don't stop believing the story. So that you don't fail to believe different parts of it that are still true for you even today. I think we're good. Take care, brothers and sisters, believers, that you don't begin to have a sinful, unbelieving heart. It's recognizing what the man who came to Jesus asking for healing recognized when Jesus says, listen, if you believe, I can do it. All things are possible. And the man replied, I believe, help my unbelief. What he's saying is, I know it up here. I believe it here. Help me to experience it. And since we're talking psychology today, let me give you the psychological terms, okay? What we talk about at Missio is we simply say head, heart, and hands. We want you to know it in your head, to know, have the knowledge, but we also want you to experience it in your heart for it to transform you so that that will drive the work of your hands. And usually what's missing between the head and the hands is the heart. And so in psychology, we would term that your cognitive beliefs, what you know up here, and then you have your functional or your behavioral beliefs. That's your hands. Those are the things you do. So when Liam was learning how to swim, and I would tell him to jump into the pool so I could catch him, and he would say, no, 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 I can't. I'm not going to do it. And I would say, Liam, don't you believe that I can catch you? He would say, yes. And I would say, don't you see that I'm standing right here with my arms open for you? He would say, yes. And I would say, then why don't you jump? And he would say, I'm scared. And I would say, then you don't really believe that I'll catch you. You know it up here, but you still feel differently. And that's why every single one of us have done what Paul writes about, saying, I do the things that I don't want to do. And the things that I want to do, I do not do. That's why every single one of us, I'm willing to bet, has had those moments, those things in our lives where we know it's not good for us to do them. We know this is going to be bad for us or somebody else around us, and yet we still want to do it. We still do it anyway. Because in between the cognitive head belief and the functional behavioral hand belief is this dissonance. Something's not meshing up, and it's because the heart is not being connected. You're effectual beliefs, as psychology would term it. Your effectual beliefs. What you know is true and what you live as true aren't being met here in the middle in your heart. And so that's why the author of Hebrews can write, see to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. How do we get around that? But encourage one another daily as long as it is called today so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Every single one of us needs to be reminded of this true story daily. We need to be reminded of the truths of who God is and what he has done and the truths of what that makes us now, who that makes us now, so that 
our behavioral belief can start to match our cognitive belief. Because every believer fails to believe still. Doesn't mean you're not a follower of Jesus. Doesn't mean that you're not a child of God. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is every single one of us needs to be reminded of the story daily. And we need to trust in and lean on the power of the spirit to transform our hearts so that we actually effectually believe that to be true. That we not just know that God is good, but we taste and see that the Lord is good. Listen to this from Ephesians. This is chapter 1, verses 17 and 18. I'll read to you. And this is Paul writing to the church in Ephesus, and he's saying this. Actually, I'm going to back up. Verse 16, he says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that, this is what he's praying for them, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. That's our head. You don't even come to the cognitive belief of God without the spirit at work in you. And so we must trust the spirit to do the rest of this work too. And this is the rest of the work. Wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. See what he does there? He, he moves that from your head down into your heart. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. He has called you to something. If we were to jump ahead, chapter 2 of Ephesians, Paul writes, We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. What you do with your hands matter. Your functional behavioral belief matters. And it needs to be informed by your heart. What do you effectually believe? And so we got to connect these things. The head, heart, hands. God's after the whole self. He doesn't just want you to know about him. He doesn't just want you to be able to pass the theological test. He also doesn't just want your works that you go out and do good things because you know he's watching. You want to get that pink card. God is after our heart. He is after the whole person. And so here's what we're going to do. I want to read from Psalm 145. Will actually taught on this a few weeks back. Did a great job. I recommend you go back and listen to the podcast on there. Uh, but we're going to read it today specifically looking for the truths that we all need to be reminded of to live more faithfully in this story. And so if this is the true story of the whole world, we're going to read Psalm 145 as if it were true. And I'm going to give you a scenario afterward of something I struggled with, and I want you to speak truth to me. Because you're my brothers and my sisters, and because you have the spirit within you, you don't have to be standing up here with a microphone to speak the gospel. And so I, I, we're going to practice this, okay? Does that make anyone nervous? We're going to practice it. And so turn with me to Psalm 145. And if you're able to, I would invite you to stand with me. We're going to read the entire Psalm 145. 
out of reverence of God's word, out of recognizing this is not just some story and this is also not just some bit of poetry written thousands of years ago, but this is the word of God, his address to us, and his invitation to live in the true story. We stand in reverence as I read a song of praise of David, and he writes, I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord is faithful in all his words and kind in all his works. The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand, you satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears the cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. Amen. This is God's word. You can be seated. I'm going to give you a cheat sheet, okay? Yes, Steve, it is Psalm 145. You have your Bibles open. And also on the tables around you guys are these little magnets. You've seen them before, I hope. If not, you haven't been paying attention. Um, but no, there's grace, don't worry. These little magnets with four statements on them. And each of those statements can be found in what we just read in Psalm 145, as well as throughout the entirety of the story of Scripture. But Psalm 145 really summarizes those four statements, truths from the story really, really well. And so here's our scenario. Several years back, uh, when Wade and I were pastoring, at the time, what was called Church of the Cross, and there was another pastor who had planted the church, and that pastor resigned for various personal reasons, and Wade and I looked at each other and said, what do we do? And we said, well, let's, let's do this together. Let's, let's co-pastor. Let's serve this family that we're a part of, that we love, that we care for. We feel like God has called us to this. But we also feel like specifically God has freed up or God is calling Wade to be freed up to spend all of his time toward this. And at the time, I was running a nonprofit, which I still do now today. 
And I feel very much called to that work as well. And so we started looking at how things would, would shake up on the practical day-to-day stuff. And what that would look like was way taking on a lot more of the full-time and me being able to continue working with the organization I was working with as well as serving the church. But there was a problem. There was about a five-month problem. It was that Wade was in the middle of a contract with the high school that he was working at as a guidance counselor. And it wasn't right for him to leave that contract. And so what we said was that there wasn't a lot of time for him to give outside of his full-time job and his family to add to that for those few months. But there was for me because I was working a job that was a lot more flexible in the schedule. So it was kind of like a, hey, pass me the baton for these next few months. And then when the summer comes, I'm going to hand over a lot of those batons, those 50 batons over to you. And for those few months, for that semester of school, like the first half of it, I felt like I was just killing it. I was knocking it out of the park. I was, I was like, this is easy. I could do this all day, every day. No problem. I was working actually two other jobs at the time. No problem. Going to school, no problem. And one day, I got into my car after a meeting with someone in the morning, someone that I was trying to help counsel a little bit through some things, and I get into my car, and I stick my key in the car, and I'm just frozen there for what felt like eternity. And I knew I had another meeting I had to get to, but I just sat there in my car, and I couldn't start it. And cognitively, in my brain, my brain was telling me, turn the key. You've done this before. Foot on the clutch, turn the key. You got a meeting to go to. You know who it is. You know what you need to talk about. You know where to go. And I couldn't do it. I had what I think now, I didn't know it at the time, was a little bit of a nervous breakdown. Because there was some kind of dissonance between what I believed up here in my head and what I was doing with my hands. Your task now is to speak truth to me from Psalm 145 or from those little magnets. What was I failing to believe here in my heart that was directing my functional behavioral beliefs? And so I want to hear from you. What, what good news, not advice, there's all kinds of advice I could have used then. Start the car. Take a day off tomorrow. You need some rest. That's true. But what good news did I need to hear in that moment? Preach to me. Go ahead, David. How does that speak to me in that moment?
good. Thank you. God is near. He's not left me. I can cry out to him. What else? Hmm. Why don't I have to prove myself, Cindy? <laughs> that was a that was a part B to the question. There's a it says on the magnet, so I don't have to prove myself. Why? What comes before that? God is gracious. He is gracious to me. I don't have to prove myself to my church family, to my immediate family. I don't have to prove myself to anyone at those meetings I'm going to. I don't have to prove that I can handle all this. God is great, meaning sovereign, powerful, in control. God is, so I don't have to be in control. I, I am his instrument that he does the work through, just as you are and you. I don't have to be in control. God is in control. On this magnet, these four statements, again, just like we use those six symbols just to remind us and be those, as Wade said last week, signposts, the visual to help us remember what the whole true story is. These four statements, which we actually got from a man named Tim Chester, you can call them four Gs because it's a lot of alliteration. Pastors like to do that stuff. Uh, they're, they're all a G. But, or a better name is the four eternal truths of who God is are all found in Psalm 145. If you read through it again on your own, look for these four Gs, and you'll find them there. These remind us of who God is in the story, which also free us up to be who we really are in the story. And so let's look at those. If I can get that iPad drawing back up just real quick. If we said that we all have a need to be safe, to have purpose in life, to experience pleasure or joy, and to be loved. These four truths, take these magnets, put them on your fridge at home, remember them, recite them as you recite the story to yourselves. They free us up to find that all of these needs are found and met in Christ. That God is great. And if God is great, I don't have to take control for myself or for my life, or over my kids. I'm safe in his control. He's great. Even in the most out of control moment of history, it seemed like when Jesus, the savior, was being murdered, he was doing it willingly and purposefully. He was in control. My need for purpose or for people to know that I have significance and meaning which causes me to fear what they think about me and to live a life riddled with anxiety or depressed because I don't feel like I have a purpose. If I believe that God is glorious, God is the most weighty being in all of the universe and he determines what has worth and value and he loves me and cares for me, has brought me in to his family I don't have to fear what others think about me. That's good news. Not advice, good news. If I have a need for pleasure, 
and I'm seeking instant gratification in everything I can, whether it's food or money or sex or position. I'm looking for the quick fix to feeling good in life. But I remember that God is good. And listen, I don't just mean God is good like he always does the right thing, like he's good versus bad, although that's true. But what this statement also means is that God is good, he is pleasurable, he is satisfying. God is good, like I say, that was a really good chorizo burrito, only like to the infinite degree. He satisfies, so I don't have to look anywhere else for satisfaction. Not in this quick fix that I know is going to leave me empty later. God brings everlasting joy. And if I have this need to be loved, I'm constantly trying to prove myself to other people so that they would love me and affirm me. We were joking earlier, Will made a comment about my shirt, how he likes my shirt. I said, I wear it every time I see you because I need that affirmation. (laughs) But listen, if God is gracious, I don't have to prove myself. I just sat with some friends, last story I promise, on Wednesday night, our missional community was gathering together uh, and I couldn't make it because last minute I had a call and wanted to go sit with some old, very dear friends who are struggling in their marriage. Coincidentally, my wife told me it was one of the best nights that our MC has had in a long time. (laughs) But God's gracious, so I don't have to prove myself and my worth. And so I, I, I went and I met with these friends who are struggling with their marriage. And by all accounts, by all appearances, it seems like it's ending. And I sat there and listened to them point the blame at each other the entire night and tell each other that they were lying, trying to prove themselves in front of the other person, trying to prove who was right to me and, and my other two friends who I had gone with to speak truth to them. This need for being loved by one another not getting met this issue of not feeling safe in their home is a very real issue. And all this going on, and listen, we gave some good advice that night, my two other friends and I. We did. We gave some good advice. You need counseling. You need anger management. Your kids need people that they can talk to about this. It's all good advice. But what my friends needed to hear, by the grace of God and in his spirit, we were able to tell them, was good news, not good advice. That you don't have, you don't have to prove yourself to your spouse even. Because God is gracious. You don't have to take control over your spouse and over your kids right now because God is great. You don't have to look somewhere else to get your needs met when your spouse isn't doing it for you because God is good. You don't have to fear what I'm thinking about you right now as you're laying all this junk out. Who cares what I think about you? God is glorious. This is good news. And we know that this news is good and that it's true because we see it in Jesus perfectly. If we say that God is great, so I don't have to be in control, we see that 
perfectly in Jesus. I want to read in Hebrews one more time. I told you I was done, but you know what? This is good, and so I'm just going to keep going. Hebrews 1, verse 3. This is talking about Jesus. He is the radiance of the glory of God. When someone told Bethany, I see this radiance in you, they're seeing the spirit. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God perfectly. He is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Listen to this. If God is glorious, we see the radiance of the glory of God in Jesus. If God is great, we see in verse 3, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. That's some great power. Who is this that even the wind and the waves obey? If God is gracious, after making purification for our sins, this is what Jesus did for us. You were his enemy, you rebelled, but he has redeemed you. He has made you pure. Then he goes and he sits down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He is good and we get invited into that place. As Ephesians had said, the rich inheritance. We get to be seated with the Father because of Jesus and what he has done on our behalf. That is where you will find all the satisfaction you could ever search for. Remind yourself these four truths. Remind yourself the story. Be rooted in it so that you can connect your head to your heart and faithfully Live that out with your hands.